Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the challenge that we have before us to prize you above the temporary things of this world. And we pray that you would help us see the dangers that are out there of uh, seeking to manipulate you like a vending machine to get what we want rather than submit ourselves to the authority of the king and his kingdom. I pray we see the, the, um, the subtlety of that in the passage that we study today. Would you be with us? Would your spirit move among us? Thank you for the things that are going on in the church that are um, other, uh, others focused and that push us toward um, not being so centered on where we are, what we're doing, what we don't have, but uh, push us um, in the direction of loving others because they're created in your image and because you have redeemed and called them. Um, I pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would be givers and not takers. Uh, would you help us to, to be conscious and alert to areas where we can serve rather than sit down? I pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Acts uh, this, this week. In Acts chapter 8. Last time we were in Acts, we saw that Philip was one of those who had been scattered, right? We talked about how there was persecution in Jerusalem, and so the Hellenistic Jewish Christians, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, took the brunt of that, and they were forced out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. And a, um, a certain young uh, up-and-coming uh, Jewish uh, socialite named Saul was taking the charge, uh, of persecuting them. And so the way Luke terms what was going on was a scattering, and they were scattered like seed. And they were in uh, the north and west of Jerusalem, that area, kind of. And one of the highlights that Luke brought to us was Philip. And who was Philip again, just by way of review? He was a deacon appointed because of the Greek um, Hellenistic Jews uh-huh. that needed service. Okay, so there was a conflict in the church about who's taking care of the widows that speak Greek. And they appointed Christians who were from that section of the community to, um, to, to take over the administration of doling out the charitable contributions to the widows of that, of that part of the day. And Philip was one of them. Stephen was named first, and we saw that he was massacred or killed by the Jewish leaders, um, and then Philip gets scattered. And, and Luke highlights what's going on with Philip. What was going on with Philip in some area, in Samaria, a, a city in Samaria? What was going on with him? What does it say he was doing? He had a lot of miracles going on there. He was preaching the word, and, it, and the Holy Spirit was, was demonstrating the authority of the gospel, the truth of the gospel through miracles that were going on, and it included healings, and he was casting demons out of people, and they were, there, it says there was great joy in that city, right? Great joy. And we talked a lot about that last time uh, we, were, we were in Acts. 
But we're going to see today that some had little use for the message, but really wanted the miracles. Some had little use for the message, but really wanted miracles. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 9, and read about a man named Simon. But there was a man named Simon, <laughs> who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the, is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. All right, we'll stop there for a second. Who is Simon? Who is this shadowy character? Who is Simon? A sorcerer, magician is the term that... that uh, that Luke uses, that the, the, the term in Greek actually can mean either a positive or a negative. Usually referred, like the, the same term is used of the magi that come from the east, familiar, wise, whatever. It can also be used as a pejorative term, which is being used that way here, for a trickster. A, um, a really good David Copperfield kind of guy, a lot of sleight of hand stuff going on here. So he had practiced magic for a long time and was apparently pretty good at, at fooling the people and had made a, na a name for himself. Who is he claiming to be or who are they calling him? Great. The, power of God. the power of God. Now that's interesting. What, who has the power of God? Jesus. Yes, but we're in the Acts. The Apostles. And we're in Acts, and how are we seeing? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> Keep going, Grant, we'll get it. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the power of God, right? In, in the function of the Trinity, you see the, the Holy Spirit is being, uh, taking on the role of the expression of God's power. And yet this guy's being called the power of God. Now, do you think that sets up things a little interesting for what's going to happen here with Philip coming in with the gospel? He claims to be the power of God incarnate, the Spirit of God. He's presented by Luke as this charlatan guy. And in fact, the early church fathers, looking back at this passage, talk, Justin Martyr was a Samaritan. And he talks about all of Samaria uh, honoring this guy, a guy named Simon, who performed these feats. And um, he points to a later... Gnostic, heretical Gnostic sect called the Simonians that point back to this guy, Simon, the magician, as being their founder. Justin Martyr uh, wrote that Simon was from the village of Gitto, which, you know, you can get a passport to that today, I guess, was worshipped by almost all of the Samaritans in his day as the first god. And toward the end of the second century, Arrhenius also wrote of a very elaborate belief system of the Simonians. It's possible that the Simon and Acts had nothing to do with the Simonians whatsoever, but they were just some you know, Gnostic sect that kind of tried to adopt the name of a guy in the New Testament to give themselves some street cred. That could be it. And, and you know, we don't know. But the point is, 
there, this guy is, is seen as not part of the church by the second century Christians, which it says he believed. Right? Simon also believed. Um, when the people of Samaria heard, this, at this, in the city he's in, when they heard Philip's preaching, what happened? What does it say? Much joy. Much joy. What does it say in our passage today? That's okay. You're right. And that, we'll talk about that in a minute. Philip as he preached the good news. They were baptized. They were baptized. How many? Who, who, who was involved in this? Men and women. In mass, they're being baptized, confessing Christ, believing, right? At, through Philip's preaching. What does it say they believe in? Believe Philip. They believe Philip and what about what was he, what was about Philip? They were believing the good news about the kingdom of God. The good news about the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus Christ. So you have objects of belief that Luke brings out of these people believing in mass. Yes, and Simon believed in what? Believed. Does it say? Even Simon himself believed. Even Simon himself believed. In what? Which in turn refers back to the previous belief. You think? The way it's set up, I would. Others disagree. That it seems, from the language you used, that Simon, it just says he identifies, he believes, but how does he express that belief? What is he doing? He's going through the... He's watching the miracles. He's, watching the miracles. He's hanging out with who all the time? He's bird-dogging him. How's he doing this? Right? That's the expression of his belief, and that's where Luke goes immediately. It would seem that he would have believed like everybody else, but what's the expression of it? He's, he's, these are tricks of the trade. He wants to learn, right? Um, they believe the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Simon has no object... Luke doesn't give any object for his belief. And his response is, he follows Philip everywhere. He's really into these miraculous signs. So then Luke moves on to another, uh, another event. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right, what's going on here? We'll stop there at verse 17. What's going on here? It's a very confusing passage. It is. It is. What does that mean? It was the early church in a unique time in history that the Holy Spirit was being dispersed. Okay. And I think it's a it's a good passage because even if uh, I agree, it's a good passage. Even if Simon uh, did believe in the name of Jesus Christ, it says that they had only believed in the name of Jesus Christ, but they hadn't been baptized or they hadn't received the Spirit. So I think it's uh, showing God's... Can you receive... Can you, can you believe in the name of Jesus, trust Him, 
and not have received the Spirit? Sure. You can. Hmm? Okay. As far as he had taught them, they have ascended and believed to that point. What kind of receiving of the Spirit is he talking about here? What does that mean? Changed life. Really? If I'm moving from unbelief to belief, isn't that a changed heart? Yes. Isn't in all of this, so you already referenced the Holy Spirit being the representation of God's power. Right. The Holy Spirit is how they're performing all of these miracles. Okay. Not yes. Where this is going. I think so. Typically, the Holy Spirit, whenever they went and they received the Holy Spirit, there was a boldness to spread the gospel. Okay. That, that was a sign of afterwards. Is that the only thing we see? Right, that's where we're going. But, but I'm talking about verses 14 through 17. What is he talking about when he says they had not received the Holy Spirit yet? Does this make everybody nervous? No. Okay, good. Then to explain to me what it is. I just, it's Pentecost, and it was a unique time in history when the church was okay. yes. established. Mm -hmm. Transition so, period, same thing happened with the Gentiles. Transition period, same thing happened with the Gentiles. What happened with the Gentiles? The same, the same laying of hands. In this, the transition period, the same, it required, they brought in a new group to the fold. They needed to be under the apostles' authority. Right. They needed to be confirmed by the apostles. Okay. They a unified church. Right. Rather than being. So here's the deal. You can't have a converted heart without the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was already operating in their heart. But Simon didn't see that. And there wasn't a public expression of that. Not like Pentecost. Right? This passage has been called by many as the Samaritan Pentecost. And it helps to show the approval of the Holy Spirit on this work that Philip is doing with people that are not Jewish. They're not in Israel. They're not of Israel. They're rejected by Israel. And yet, here is a work of the sovereign God in and among them to the same degree as He worked in the Jews in Jerusalem. Isn't it also for the Jews in Jerusalem to... Yes. And, and, and that's exactly what happens. And we'll see that in verse 25 when we get there. What's going on is Pentecost is spreading among different groups. And again, it also happens with, with, with we'll see it in Gentiles. Samaritans are kind of the in-between half-breed group, right? But we're seeing the movement of the mission confirmed by the Holy Spirit in an objective, verifiable sense in the same way it was with Pentecost here among the Samaritans. And the apostles are, are here. Why? Well... Let me just, some people try to make a big deal out of, um, out of how people receive the Holy Spirit and what that's to look like. There's no set pattern in Acts. There's no set pattern. And to, and to, and to make a formulaic view of what God, how God moves by His Spirit, Jesus said, the Spirit blows where He will. So, we see sometimes baptism, then the Spirit moving. Sometimes we see the Spirit moving, then baptism. 
So just throw those out to your Church of Christ friends. Their heads will explode. You might lose lunch. You know, not lose lunch, but I mean, you might not get invited to a lunch. You might lose lunch. I don't know. But anyway, it depends on the season, I guess. Um, There's no set pattern. The Spirit is connected to becoming a Christian, and that's all we're given. He moves. Lives are changed. How that looks, there's not a set pattern. I can't say you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues, right? Which is how I grew up hearing that all the time. That's not what we're seeing here. He moves where he wills. Luke is saying that the Samaritans had only been baptized, is also translated, had simply been baptized. And many of the smart folks say that, that this points to a physical expression of the Spirit that is noticed by Simon later. That's why he reacts with the apostles. What's the physical expression? Are we told? Does he give it to us? Does he say they all floated about three feet? Does he say they spoke in tongues? Does he say they ran around and laughed hysterically? Does he say they barked like dogs for three hours a day? No. How, what does he say? What's the physical expression? He doesn't give it, does he? Could have been a flame above their head or anything. It could have been a number of things. It's, 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 and that's where we're given. It could have been. We don't know. He doesn't, Luke doesn't care. That's not the point. And neither should we. <laughs> because we're not given that. It's all conjecture. So what he's given is that the Spirit moved in a way, some way that we're not told, that Simon noticed it and wanted it. Right? This outward expression, though, does not rule out the testimony of other passages of Scripture that say that the Spirit's work on the heart inwardly is present at conversion. So by him saying they hadn't received the Spirit yet, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not operating in the heart. I just want to, I want to draw that out. Uh, we know from other passages of Scripture that without the working of the Spirit, they would not have repented and believed in the first place. All right. So Peter, um, Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritans as a gesture of apostolic solidarity and fellowship with them. Um, this is a major step for the church to go outside of Judaism. It seems to receive divine approval in this response by the Holy Spirit. To what? What is he responding to? What does he say? Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, verse 18, he offered them money. It's always a good call with the apostles, apparently. (laughs) Saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, 
Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We'll stop there. All right. What does Simon do? Well, let me ask you this. Does it say that Simon received the Spirit too? Well, that's odd. But he wanted to give it, but he hadn't received it. He appears as more the onlooker than a participant. And his behavior here doesn't seem to show any spiritual enlightenment on his part. He is um, captivated by the marketability of this power. Think of the shows, the lights. The money, when you can call down at any moment, whatever this objective, verifiable response of the Spirit is, you can wield it at command. What does Simon do in response to this expression of the Spirit? Tries to get it for himself. Tries to get it for himself. Tries to purchase it. Purchase it. Now, it, clearly, he doesn't understand the nature of the Holy Spirit. But he... He's acting very consistently with a professional magician. I mean, these tricks of the trade are for sale. This is a commodity among, among magicians, right? How did you do that trick? Grant Price always tells me, he goes, these guys come up to me and they say, I think I know how you do this, but just confirm for me what you did and I'll see if I'm right. You know, he's like, I'm not doing that. So, Very closely guarded, treasured, sleight of hand. And Simon is trying to purchase it. What's Peter's response? He puts him in his place. What does he say to him about the state of his heart? He's not right with God. Now, is he saying, look, you need a little additional instruction in the gospel? You need some teaching on how these things work. We need to sit down, have, have some coffee, and assess, you know, where you, 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 you put off the old man and bring on the new... What is he saying to him? Repent. You haven't really believed, right? Why would he say that? That's very harsh and judgmental on Peter's part. believed. He doesn't get it. He thinks that this is like a trick. Yeah. It's not real. Right. He, he doesn't believe. He thinks it's a trick. He doesn't think it's real. Peter gets to the heart of the issue. He doesn't, I mean, he's, he's a minister of the gospel at this point, and he's not there to pander. So he's he cares about this guy and he knows that he's wrong. He wants to correct him. Yeah. He says, repent and turn your heart. Your heart's not right. What did, how does he describe his, his heart? What does he say? Poison. Poison, the gall of bitterness? Yes. It's kind of a graphic description. Think of that in terms of what we read about the city of Samaria here. What are they experiencing, these who are coming to Christ? joy. They're experiencing the forgiveness of Christ, the unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's great joy visited, visited that city. 
And yet here's this guy who's bird dog and Philip and now bird dog and the apostles wanting what he thinks he can get out of this deal. And that leaves him the opposite of joy. He's discontent. He's bitter. He's jealous. He wants it too. Right? Your heart is not right in this matter, he says. It's a very clear, it's a very clear indication that, that Peter is calling him to actually trust Jesus and, and the belief before was false. It could be viewed as a prediction, may your silver perish with you, as much as a condemnation. Greed is always depicted in the New Testament as being an um, extremely destructive force, right? Uh, Judas, I mean, we start with pretty graphic view of his death. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, that ended well for them. And here you have the same kind of idea. What are they trying to do? All three of those situations, here, Ananias and Sapphira and Judas, what are they trying to do? Get something from God for... To keep it hidden from him. To keep something hidden from him. My heart is not right, but I want this to look like this. So there's a... There's a and then also, for personal gain, right? We want to be seen as great... I want to be seen as something great still by the Samaritans. I want to keep that elevated status among them. Somebody's knocked me off that pedestal. And so maybe if I give them a little money that I've gained from tricking people in the past, uh, I can be back on top again. No one can manipulate the Holy Spirit. Peter says to him, What do you think? You're going to buy the gift of God? With money? It's a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift directed by the sovereign will of God, not our will. Um, and even in this situation, how did the Holy Spirit move? He was in response to the apostles' prayer, to their prayer. Uh, notice the power here of a stubborn presupposition. He's thinking in terms of um, merchant, magician, right? He's thinking in terms of commercial endeavor. He's not thinking in terms of the power of the gospel to change lives. Others focused. He's thinking on personal gain. He focuses on the laying on of hands, this physical act by the apostles showing their solidarity with the people of Samaria, and not the gift of God, what's going on in the heart. What's internal? One of the takeaways from this passage, Christianity has nothing to do with magic. There's no magic. Uh, there's, there's really not a whole lot of... There's, there's nothing mystical about it. We don't do smoke and the thing. That's not, that's not what the, the religion is about. That's not what the belief system is about. It's not about magic or, or manipulating God through certain secretive rites. Like calling down the king of heaven on an altar or getting up every day confessing that today is the day of your miracle. That's not the way this thing works. Where, what does Peter say in verse 21 about where Simon stands? 
We don't have a part or a share, part or parcel. When we've talked before about, um, in Levitical law, about someone losing their part or their share in the inheritance, what does that normally in, entail? What are, what are we talking about there? Being cast out. Being cast out. Being apart from the people of God, being apart from God. Uh, if an Israelite loses his inheritance, he has no part with them. That's the language Peter's using. Right now, you have nothing in relationship to God. Okay. So basically what he's doing is more of a, a statement of fact than a pronouncement. He never had any part in this share or, or share in this, quote, ministry, Peter says. And, and that's another term for the gospel. Simon had responded to greed, not the gospel. So what does what does Peter do then? Does he stop there? Does he just monkey stomp the guy and walk away? What does he do? He shows grace and he calls for repentance. He calls for repentance. He didn't strike him that or he didn't find it stark that, you know, Ananias and Sapphira were stricken down by the by God. And right. It wasn't Peter per se, but right. there was just great grace here that he he calls him to repentance and that's the only repercussion that we see. It, there's a lot of mercy there by God to a guy who calls himself basically the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of grace there by God to a guy who's trying to use God's power as a vending machine for his own financial gain. Right? A lot of grace here. Repent. Believe the gospel. Does he? Why not? You say no, and I agree with you. Why not? What do you see here that, that, that helps you draw that conclusion? His prayer is just that these things are not going to find him. He, 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 there's no forget, asking for forgiveness in his prayer. There's no there's forgiveness no, request. There's no repentance of what? He doesn't want the consequences. He doesn't want the consequences. That sounds like who? <clears throat> well, any number of people, I guess. I'm thinking particularly Esau, but yes, sir. It's not a prayer. He's asking them to pray. Again, lay your hands on me. Do the physical act of the magic on me. Right? So that these things may not happen. It's not so that I may be forgiven. Right. Not, not so that I may be forgiven. Just don't let the stuff happen. I like my silver. I don't want to die with it. Um, the idea of you pray to your God, those things don't happen to you. Who does that sound like? You pray to your God so these things don't happen to me. Does that sound like a believer? Or does that sound like Pharaoh? Pharaoh. The heart of the unregenerate. The heart of the reprobate Pharaoh. It's the same kind of idea here. Yeah? Similar to that whole uh, Balaam and, and uh, interestingly enough, the, the King Barak. Um, <laughs> so there's no prayer of repentance by Simon. So we got two years of it all being his fault. That's going to be awesome. Okay, no prayer of repentance by Simon, only a fear of the judgment pronounced by the apostles because of his state before God. He instead asked the apostles to pray. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A couple of things. Notice that it doesn't say all evil, but all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say the having of money, but the love of money. We're called to be stewards of all that God has given us, including money. Another point here, why would we coddle a theology that pushes its people to crave what will cause them to wander from trusting Jesus alone and will destroy their souls? Why do we tolerate that? Peter says of Simon here, your heart is not right. From the core, you're off. This isn't love of Jesus, but love of self. Why would we tolerate a theology that pushes that? Um, hello. I may have put on a little weight. <laughs> All right, look at verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord... They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 25 is, is a transitional verse and offers another what we've, what we've come to see as an inclusio, where uh, passages are bracketed by similar sounding pa uh, verses. And, and you see verse 4 starts kind of this way and verse 25 ends this way with them going back to Jerusalem rather than coming from Jerusalem and they're preaching through these towns in Samaria. What are the apostles doing on the way back to Jerusalem? They're, they're, they're referencing the apostles evangelizing uh, the Samaritan villages. That's a, a significant deal. Why is that significant? Do you think? They're doing it. These Jewish apostles are evangelizing Samaritans. Do you remember John and James offering to, Lord, would you, would you have us bring down lightning on these people and fire? And, and now here they are evangelizing them. What does that tell you? A changed heart. The reference to the apostles evangelizing Samaritan villages is significant. Not only did they endorse the Samaritan mission, they are enthusiastically participating in it. And the mission is then embraced by the entire church. Um, verse 25, does it limit it just to the apostles? What does it say? They. they. Some think, and I agree, that this they also includes Philip. Because it sets him up to go further south in the next passage when he visits a certain Ethiopian in a chariot reading, uh, reading a scroll. And is teleported. Right? But at least he's at a better launching spot. I don't know. From some, some, some have argued that, that Philip goes with him also to give an account in Jerusalem. But while he's there, um, the Holy Spirit has a, a side venture for him, which we will take up next week. Any questions or comments? It's 10.06. I think it's interesting. Um, we see throughout the New Testament, Peter says a lot about gold and money and you know yeah silver and gold have I none and then I thought it was interesting in first Peter 1 uh, 18 he says knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition but with the precious blood of Christ and so he's he's true to that message of the gospel and I, I can't help but think that he was thinking about this guy Simon when he wrote this mm -hmm. you know just 
that stark picture yeah. of of the true gospel and it's not something you can buy. Right. And by the time he wrote that, he's probably been in pastoral ministry for a while and seen it on several levels. Right. With well, Judas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of a big impression uh, on him. And and who knows where his heart was when he was with Jesus, you know, we've left all for you. But I want all, but we but we've left all for you. You know, I mean, there could have been some struggling going on there. He certainly talks about it during his time with Jesus. Uh, but yeah, he's gone through Judas, he's gone through Ananias and Sapphira, he's gone through Simon, and there will be, I'm sure, others that were not given that he sees the, the corrupting nature of a lust for money, a lust for power, and, um, and having your, your wants taken care of. You, you see a contrast in some of the other believers that talks about the wealthy women that supported the mm -hmm. Philemon being a fresh refreshment, and right. he was a very well-to-do so you see that it's not the money itself. Right. It's the, it's the, the lust for it. Yeah. Money as an idol. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The love of money is a root. Right. Right. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so is this like saying that Christian humanism is bad? Because, I mean, I know it results in a different, in a different way, like um, pursuing Jesus because... He's like the meaning in life. He's the joy of your heart. It's supposed to result in love for him. Uh -huh. And this doesn't what Simon was doing. But is it saying? Uh, well, you're talking about Piper's Christian hedonism thing. Um, I don't think it invalidates what he means by that. I don't think so. I mean, because I think the core issue with what he's saying is pursue Christ as the center of everything. Uh, because his joy is what we want. His, his you know, in, in him, there, it, in other words, you're not going to have your best life now <laughs> with money or health or political power. Your best life now and in future comes from loving Jesus more than anything else so, such that you become or, or, or get closer to or are becoming, being sanctified into someone that you've been created to be, which is to be joyful in Christ. I don't, I don't think that that invalidates Christian hedonism, because I don't think Piper would ever say, go for money. He, he would probably get a twitch in his right eye if somebody thought that's what, you know, so I don't think he's saying that. But, I, but the language Christian hedonism, some people debated whether or not it's helpful. I don't know. I'm, I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I, I, I enjoy some of, the, some of the provocative language, so... Um, anyway, sure. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, we do want your joy. We do crave to be in right fellowship with you in the kingdom of Christ. And we thank you that by your Spirit you are moving us not only from a position of declared fellowship with you, at peace with you because of what Jesus has done, but are also mending our hearts and, and um, moving us out from the old man to the new man so that we are becoming who we've been declared to be in Jesus.
that we are rightly uh, already seated with him in heavenly places, even though we are still battling our own (coughs) remaining sin. I thank you that you're so faithful to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess and keep short accounts with you. We, we want to be faithful in our heart of repentance and also in our thankfulness and joy in what you've done and are doing for us because of the finished work of Christ. Would you move our hearts to love you and love you alone, to seek your face above all others, that we would not be distracted by the, the, the tugging temporary pleasures of this life, even on Super Sunday. I pray that you would be with us today, reminding us of the supremacy of Christ in all things, and that we would be bold to declare it to a world that is in the gall of bitterness and jealousy and discontent, whose hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It would be means of pointing them to that rest. In Christ's name, amen. amen.